One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. To the other hand, a podcast that tries to do something different—a discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. How are we different? We hope our discussions speak for themselves. You are most welcome to our podcast.、Uh, this morning, we're just going to have a discussion on what's happening in the Irish banking market. Um, in particular, but banking globally in general terms.、Uh, yesterday, Bank of Ireland made an announcement to close 88 of its 257 branches in the Republic of Ireland, and that comes on top of the announcement a couple of weeks back by Ulster Bank、um, about pulling out of this country totally over the next few years.、Um, yesterday morning,、uh, when the Bank of Ireland announcement was made, I posted something on LinkedIn. Basically, asking the question, you know, what are the implications of what Bank of Ireland has just done、um, in terms of competition, in terms of customer service, and I also posed the question, you know, is it an appropriate strategy, which is, seems to be the only strategy of the Irish banks to close branches and to cut staff numbers? There appears to be no other strategy out there than cost cutting, and I wonder, is that A recipe for、uh, developing and delivering the sort of innovative banking model that a functioning economy requires.、Uh, but I put up, I put up that post and you know posed the question also if I was a bit of a dinosaur, you know, talking about the need for bank branches and so on.、Um, I got an amazing response to it. I think I've got about 150 comments at this stage, which is the highest number I've ever got for anything.、And、I think it just goes to prove. How emotive banking is, how important banking is to people, to businesses, and also、um, the interest people have in banking, because at the end of the day, you know, we hear an awful lot of criticism about banks and bankers,、um, a lot of it justified, obviously,、um, but I, I think that there is also the reality behind all of that, that sensible people realise. That a functioning banking system, you know, is a really important part of a business network and of an economy because、uh, banking 
really is a simple business. On one side of the equation, you have people who spend less than they earn. They're called savers. And on the other side, you have people and businesses who spend more than they earn. They are the borrowers. And the role of a bank is to act as an intermediary, um, channeling money in a safe, efficient, effective way from savers to borrowers. And um, I fear that, you know, over the last decades, that function of the banking system has broken down. Um, and I think it has broken down, particularly here in Ireland. And as I say, the only strategy for the Irish banks at the moment seems to be one based on cost cutting. Um, they also have very, very poor IT infrastructures. So one of the questions there is, you know, they talk about everybody moving towards digital, but if the digital offering is not up to very much, which in my view, that is the case, what are we left with? An even more dysfunctional banking system. Um, am I being a dinosaur, Chris? Well, talking of dinosaurs, Jim, the um, we are in, I think, a quite unusual position that both of us at uh, different and similar points in our careers have both worked for Bank of Ireland and AIB. Um, there are not many in that sad select band of brothers. Um, and I think the stories that we can tell from those um, years, thankfully, they were a long time ago now. So any, anything that we say is, is, is about uh, the past and not the present. It, it, it's been a long time since I worked for, for either of those banks, and I know that's true of you. But I think that people will be interested a little bit in, in the history of, of, of those banks because um, banking misbehavior, you referred to the bad reputation that banks have, um, predates the financial crisis. Obviously, it's, it's focused mostly on that. Um, and you talked about cost cutting, you talked about lots of issues that really go back an awful long way. The traditional way in which banking has grown in both Britain and Ireland um, over many decades, if not centuries, has been actually based on cost cutting and the adoption of new technology. The way in which the modern banks look the way they do is because in the past there were bank mergers. Every few years, one bank would buy another both AIB and Bank of Ireland are a result of many mergers over many years of many different banks. Uh, some of the legacy of that you can see on some of the older branches. The older names still exist um, on, on the brass plates, well, well worn down. And the way in which they did it was a very simple model. You talked about simplicity in terms of what banks actually do with respect to borrowing and lending. But the way in which banks have evolved themselves is very simple, is that two banks would get together, one would buy the other, um, and they would reap what economists call economies of scale, usually by firing half the workers and adopting new technologies. Um, the thing that's not open to the Irish banks right now, I think for obvious reasons, because there aren't any left to buy, is that um, they, the only route left is, is cost-cutting and um, responding to technological change. The, the banks themselves are dinosaurs. You ask the question, are we? I suspect we are, Jim. But the banks themselves are, are, are perhaps the last business left to be fully disrupted by the Internet. We know what the Internet has done to travel agents, uh, booksellers, and all the rest that have, in, in the ugly jargon, been disintermediated by the Internet. Um, people go, go direct. We know the way in which the high street itself has been disintermediated by internet shopping. 
And banks have stood out in recent years, have been the last big sector not to be disintermediated. But it's happening. The advent of companies like Revolut, um, Monzo in the UK, I think that's less common in Ireland, but these tech startups are taking away some of the core business, deposits not least, of, of the banks. And um, one of the initiatives that was recently announced predating the branch closure announcement was the way in which some of the Irish banks were getting together to compete directly with Revolut. My response to that was good luck with that, given the bank's rather patchy track record um, in recent years of spending loads of money on technology and not getting much return for it. Um, the banks in Ireland, I think, have just become essentially building societies these days. Um, they don't have many other activities than lending on, on, on property. Um, but banking is crucial for the economy. We know that. Um, we often say that banks are the plumbing of, of the economy. I think the, the, the slightly sceptical response to that would be, yeah, plumbing's a good metaphor, but maybe the, the sewers of the economy would be a, a, a better one. Um, so th there's an awful lot going on with banking. Banks are responsible for money creation. We often talk about the way in which central banks are creating money at the moment by all the quantitative easing that they're doing. But you talk to the way, uh, the way in which depositors and borrowers are matched up in the, in, in the economy. And um, that's done repeatedly every day in that every, every loan becomes a bank deposit and every bank deposit becomes a loan. And that means that banks can create money out of thin air. It's, it's almost a magical process when, when you think about it. Um, obviously, the regulator, the, the central bank, has a lot to say about that and tries very hard to control it, sometimes with less success than others. But banks are incredibly important for the functioning of the economy. They are being disrupted everywhere. They, they are evolving, but the issues um, are always the same. Again, going back to that dinosaur comment, one of the instances I remember from when I was um, a banker many years ago is that um, banks traditionally get in management consultants to have a look at their business model and to tell them what to do. And one of the big consultancy comes, company comes in and presents uh, a whole list of things that they do. And it's always about cost cutting. It's always about the threats to the traditional business model. And it's always about the new things that they should be doing. The problem that the modern banks have got, the Irish banks in particular, is that the new things that they should be doing are not obvious because the things that they want to do cost a lot of money and um, simply matching up borrowers and savers is uh, they are being disintermediated. In the limit, I think that banks are going to become invisible. They're just going to disappear from the high street if this trend continues. Um, and the, the phrase invisible banking is, is out there as, as a definite concept. Um, Revolut is the example I think that a lot of people would have heard about. And they are completely invisible from the high street. Um, they exist only on our, tele, on our phones and, and on our laptops. Um, the, the discussion could widen out into areas like Bitcoin and blockchain technology. There's a school of thought that says that ultimately the banks will be disintermediated via technology that is de being deployed by the likes of Bitcoin and that not only will Bitcoin or some cryptocurrency itself become a, a, a medium of exchange that disintermediates the system. I have my doubts about that, actually, because one of the, fun the other function that the banking system performs that is so crucial to the everyday 
functioning of the economy is the payment system. Um, just the simple way in which we, we exchange money with each other for the goods and services that we buy. That's the plumbing of the financial system, or one aspect of it anyway, that is so important that the banks perform. But even that might go, because it, I can see a day coming when, for example, we all have um, bank accounts, not with the retail banks, but with the central bank. Because in a way, conceptually, the banks sit between us as ordinary punters and the central bank. And they sit there in the middle acting as a broker, if you like, between us and the central bank. And what technology could ultimately do is completely do away with that need for the middleman, for the travel agent, for the bookseller, for the high street shop, what it's done already for those. And we deal directly with the central bank. Um, and indeed, the Bank of England has speculated that that might, um, might all be in our future. But that just tells me that banks without imagination, without finding new ways to make money, particularly in that low level of interest rates, are in a lot of trouble. Um, and uh, one of the things, one of the ways in which we, we should be thinking about them is, is by that plumbing or sewer analogy and thinking of them as utility companies that they are strategically very important, but we need to sit on them in order to make sure that the societal functions that they perform, particularly those payment systems, but also the, the matching of borrowers and lenders, is actually done and that they don't retreat from it, leaving a great big gaping hole in our economy. So looking at what banks might actually do going forward and thinking about that consultancy report that I measured, mentioned earlier on, I looked at what modern consultants are telling banks to do. And it's hilarious because it's exactly the same as the consultants who came in 20 years ago when I was involved in all this kind of stuff. And I took one typical report from a big global consultancy that they published only last year. And the first thing they said was that you've got to be customer centric. I know, Jim, you're going to fall about laughing at that. <laughs> Absolutely. Because you'll remember from our days from working for an unnamed bank and um, we won't embarrass them too much. Um, I remember the bank concern had a big customer-focused strategy. And many of us asked, well, shouldn't we be doing this anyway? Why, why is this new? Interestingly, um, the banks, when, they, when told that they needed to be more customer-focused, um, they all agreed with that, as they always do. But 17%, only 17% of the banks responding to this survey said that they were. Imagine that. The second recommendation of this consultancy report told the banks to move away from branches. And that's the focus of our discussion today. And move away to something called distribution dominance. Now, as always with these things, there's lots of jargon, lots of buzzwords. And distribution dominance means find something that you can sell to people. So these, these, these banks need to find something that they can sell. And of course, they've been doing that. Forever. They try to sell us savings products, investment products. They sell us mortgages. And so the consultants are just telling them to do more of that because that's where the money is. The third thing um, that this report said is, is you have to um, focus on talent. You know, And I suppose you, a consultant would say that to any organization, whether you're a corner chip shop or whether you're a global bank, focusing on talent, one presumes is, is quite important. And I think that's an opportunity for us to digress, actually, and tell a little anecdote. Tell us, Jim, about how you ended up working for both banks. Uh, okay, Chris, I um, 
when I came out of college, I worked for AIB. Um, I worked in a planning and strategy strategy area in Bank Centre for four years. And then I went into the dealing room advising dealers for almost 12 months. And at the end of the first year, I was invited to lunch by two guys. I saw, well, one I knew, the other I was vaguely aware of, invited to lunch. And in the middle of the lunch, they offered me a job in the Bank of Ireland dealing room. And um, by the time I got back into town that evening, I had accepted the job, um, came home and told my wife that I was leaving AIB to join Bank of Ireland. Um, and of the two, the two guys who offered me the job, you were one, Chris. So um goes back a long way. But um, I, 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 at the time, I mean, it was an incredible, shocking move in many ways. It was like, uh, and you say the two of us are unique in that, we, well, pretty unique in that we work for AIB and Bank of Ireland. Uh, it's like going around looking for the number of footballers who have played for Glasgow Celtic and Glasgow Rangers. And when I moved across to Bank of Ireland, that's exactly what it was like. It was like going from Celtic to Rangers, um, an incredibly... And there's um, a story there, isn't there, Jim? That there is a story, Chris, which you are at the cutting edge of rather than myself, so I'll leave you tell it, but it, it does tell us a lot about the whole um, psychology and mentality of the big banks back in those days. Yeah, this was a long time ago, and all the people concerned have either moved on or shuffled off this mortal coil. So, so we're not speaking ill of any current players, and it certainly isn't the current arrangement. But to give it a flavour of how bad behaviour by banks took many different forms in the past. At the time, the reason, apart from one company getting upset about having its talent, because that's the, the, what we're talking about here, Jim, and I don't want to embarrass you, but <laughs> one of the reasons why... Um, it was such a big deal back then, many decades ago, is that there was an informal agreement between the banks that they wouldn't poach each other's staff. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a cosy cartel, which was very unhealthy. And um, I actually didn't know anything about this very informal arrangement, which, um, which did exist. And we, we bust it wide open. Um, but the idea that, that two companies would have an agreement not to poaches out of the staff, of course, in the modern era, would be, would be risable, would, be, would, would, would rightly be mocked. But, but this did exist back then. And so the idea that talent could move between banks just wasn't there. And another aspect of talent back then, again, I think particularly younger people today would find absolutely astonishing. But the banks, I think it was informal rather than formal, but you can correct me, Jim, but the banks didn't recruit... Um, almost entirely from, they refused to recruit from, uh, from the graduate pool. They, they only took school leavers in. They didn't take graduates. Is that right? Uh, that was my understanding. And they put some of their staff through college themselves, but there was a marked reluctance, certainly, to hire graduates. Um, I was thinking about it over the last 24 hours, why that was the case. And I have absolutely no understanding of why that might be the case. But you describe... Um, an environment back then um, where AIB and Bank of Ireland were in a very dominant role in the Irish banking system and the Irish economy. And I know you've presented a very grandiose view of what the future of banking might look like. But if you come back to where banking is at the moment, um, it, to me, it feels, well, banking here in Ireland, to me, it feels very like what I grew up with in the 1980s, where 
AIB and Bank of Ireland had a duopoly. Uh, there was very little competition in the marketplace. You had a couple of other smaller players trying to chip away, but incredibly difficult to compete against those uh, those two big players. And we're, we're back there now. You know, Ulster announced a couple of weeks back it's pulling out. Um, AIB is buying up some of the Ulster Bank loan book. AIB is in the process of buying back at a significantly higher price than it sold at good body stockbrokers. So what all that tells me, um, and of course, yesterday, the Bank of Ireland announcement on branch closures, what all that tells me is that the banking sector here is becoming more concentrated. There's less competition emerging rapidly. And um, the question is, and we can address it later on, I have my views on where any competition is going to come from, or are we just going to end up in a sort of a duopoly situation with a couple of smaller players, you know, trying trying to chip away? And and sorry, Chris, I I go back. That's a great question. Yeah. I go back to the, the, the question I asked earlier on about, am I a dinosaur? And I actually feel a bit like a dinosaur at the moment because um, I believe, I fundamentally believe in the principle of customer service. And in my own personal experience, if I go to a restaurant, if I go into a shop and if I get bad customer service, I will never again darken the doors of that establishment. So I think customer service is really important. And I think personal relationships are really important in business. And I think they are now being taken out of banking. And um, I fear that what we're going to end up with um, is a pretty dysfunctional banking system where many people like myself, you know, I couldn't be bothered interacting with my bank at the moment if I have a problem. And in fact, there's a business banking problem I've had for nearly two years at this stage. And anytime I've tried to sort it out, I end up on this relentless um, phone answering service where I'm being switched from. I press one button, then have to press another button. And ultimately, I'm getting absolutely no personalized customer service. That's where we're going, unfortunately. Um, and one of the things I've done in the last 12 months um, is to get a Revolut card. And that has revolutionized um, how I spend money, to be perfectly honest. And um, it makes me very happy to be using the Revolut card because I am not paying the sort of exorbitant bank charges that uh, the banks are starting to increasingly charge per- personal customers. So um, I don't like it, I have to say. Um, I, and I, I bring up the point again, maybe I'm just um, a total dinosaur who is standing in the way of technological progress. Uh, but this is one progress that I certainly do not like. And I, I would love to say, see, you know, where this is going to go. Um, where does Irish, or where should Irish banking go from here rather than where it's likely to go? Yeah, so you certainly agree with that consultant report and you wouldn't be surprised by that 17% we're ready to be customer-centric answer. Um, and we've, we've talked about the two, two more of the uh, consultant recommendations. There are a couple of more I'll mention. Um, one is innovation. Now, of course, again, a, a management consultancy will always say to, to any firm, you must be innovative. But again, it was the response of the banks um, that they asked. This, is, this was a global survey. This isn't about Ireland in particular. It's about global um, banking. 11% of the respondents said they thought that they were innovative enough. 
So right. you might you might commend the banks for their honesty, but you might express astonishment that they didn't think that they were being innovative enough. And what you've just been saying about the, 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 the nature of modern banking, I think, would be consistent with that. I think it's important to stress that, that this is this is having a go at a system, a process and and stuff that's been imposed on banks top down, I would guess. You know, the people in the poor people in the branches who who many of whom do a great job and are talented. Um, are perhaps not being allowed via the system to be customer centric or to innovate. Yeah, I mean, Chris, I, I, I would totally agree with that point because um, I know lots of people who work in banks and bank branches and they are totally and utterly frustrated at this, the, the environment that's being created for them to service their customers. And um, they kind of laugh now when you talk about the mantra of customer service. Um, the reality is very, very different. Uh, staff numbers are being cut back, more, fewer and fewer people um, engaging with customers at the, cost, at the counter and so on. And I was kind of fascinated. So I, I definitely agree with you. Um, it's much more the system rather than the staff who are trying to work the system. Um, I was intrigued. So at yes, that point, I'm trying, yeah. to think, I'm trying to think about what the banks would would say in response to that because we do, we don't have well, a, a I was senior banker. I was, I, I was just I was just. I think gonna, what yeah. they would say is, that, I think what they would say is, Jim, it's all very well demanding that level of service, but frankly, you're not willing to pay for it. So if you're not willing to pay for it, you're not going to get it. Well, actually, you know, ten years ago we were getting better customer service and we weren't paying for it. We're now paying quite significant banking charges, and we're we're getting much inferior customer service. So, uh, you know, I think there's huge contradictions there. Uh, point I was going to make there was I was intrigued yesterday and it really brought out the cynical side of me when I heard a Bank of Ireland spokesperson on, in the media um, arguing that the reason why they were closing branches was because people were stopping using branches as if this was a choice people were making. The reason why many people are stopping using branches is because the banks have made it very unattractive to go into branches. You know, long queues, uh, very poor customer service in many cases. So it's, it's just, it's a nightmare going to a bank branch now. And that's the main reason why people have stopped visiting mm. bank branches, I believe. And um, okay, there's a lot of stuff you can certainly do online as I do, but there are other occasions when you would like to talk to somebody um, about your banking requirements. And quite frankly, I just don't do it anymore because it's way too much bother. So um, I, I, I would love to be able to operate, to be perfectly honest, as a business and as an individual uh, without the need for a bank. But unfortunately, that isn't possible because banks are still an essential part of the system. But the... Uh, the, the we do, yeah. We Sorry, don't know the answer to this question, but I suspect our, our invisible banking, senior banking guest would say that, listen... The world in which I have to operate is that I'm still dealing, um, particularly in Ireland, but also in, in lots of other jurisdictions, with the legacy of the financial crisis, a book, a book of bad or doubtful debts that are still costing me money. I can't make any money on that traditional banking business of matching borrowers and lenders. And I have to make some money somewhere. I'm a commercial enterprise. I've got shareholders to answer to. And the only way I can make any money is by cutting costs because it's all very well telling me to be innovative, but the, it, the innovation is, is incredibly hard. 
And the other thing that's happening to me is that I'm getting competed by the likes of Revolut. So I have to spend vast sums of money on technology, which, of course, is the other thing the consultants tell us to do is is this is the fifth of the sixth um, uh, of the checklist. Um, yeah, of course, spend money on technology. But, I, you know, I'm. I personally can remember, you know, many occasions when vast sums of money have been spent on technology that hasn't worked, hasn't worked properly, has taken time to get to work properly, or hasn't even been switched on. Um, a UK-based bank at the time that I worked in, this is not an Irish story, I worked for a bank that once spent $23 million on something called a CRM, which is a customer relationship management system, that in the end, they didn't even turn on. So the the... the Amount of money you have to spend just to stay in business, technologically speaking, has eroded profit margins. I'm not making many, any money in my banking book. So how can I provide you with decent customer service in the way that I did 10 years ago? That's what I suspect they would say, but I wouldn't want to put words in their mouth. The final thing that the, the consultants tell them to do, of course, which is really interesting and merits a discussion, I think, that in, in and of itself, is, is response to regulation. Because banks, of course, have caused economies and societies 10 years ago huge amounts of trouble. It's not the first time it's happened. And sadly, it probably won't be the last. But you have to have, the consultants tell the banks, a proactive regulatory management strategy. It's, a to- it's perhaps the top priority. Um, I hope they don't mean regulatory arbitrage or just playing the regulator in the way that some banks certainly did do. Um, in the run-up to the financial crisis, which in, in part caused the financial crisis. But there, there are many economists who argue that the way in which you stop the banks doing what they've done in the past is to actually take better control of that way in which they create money, in which the, a loan becomes a deposit, becomes a loan, becomes a deposit, becomes a loan, that money multiplier thing, and you force them to hold much, much more regulatory capital the amount of money that a bank actually has to hold on its balance sheet that's been supplied by shareholders rather than depositors. And that debate is, is still very much a live one. And um, the banks seem to have managed to convince regulators not to do it, or at least not to do it any more than they have done. They have Things have tightened up. But again, the banker would say, my costs of doing business have gone through the roof because of the amount of regulatory capital I have to hold now um, as a result of my misbehavior during the financial crisis. So that's why your customer service is going down. Um, I'm caught from all sides in um, costs being piled on costs, technology, regulation, etc. So don't be surprised if if I'm either charging you more for customer service or not just giving it to you. And when you have crypto and blockchain and Bitcoin and um, all the money I'm going to have to spend on artificial intelligence... The, the ways in which I'm being told to um, manipulate my big databases to produce innovation, it's all cost at the moment and no revenues. So that, that's why I'm doing um, these branch closures um, and, uh, you know, suck it up, I suspect they would say. Okay, what Chris, you, 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 we you, should do as yeah. a society because we need banks. Um, we need them for that, uh, that basic plumbing of the economy. Um, there's also a big question about the rural economy. Are banks as important to the rural economy as something like broadband or electricity, gas, those sorts of things that are more costly to supply the rural economy? Um, before I answer that question about the rural economy piece, which I feel very strongly about, but uh, you have, I suppose, plays the, 
played the devil's advocate in terms of trying to justify why we have the banking system that we have. And indeed, uh, the argument has been made in recent days that um, the reason why the average Irish mortgage is 1.5% higher than the Eurozone average is because of the stringent regulatory or capital requirements that the Irish banks are forced to hold as a result of the crash 10 years ago and the fact that the state had to bail out the banking system to a very large extent. Um, but the you, you outline uh, a sort of a, a vision for where banking is and where it might be. And I suppose the question is, is that acceptable? Is it good? We will have AIB and Bank of Ireland dominating a huge part of the market um, and that, that concentration is growing. Um, the question is, how should the Irish state respond to this? Should they just stand back as they tend to do and let this happen? Nobody shouted stop. Um, I argued 10 years ago in the aftermath of the banking crash that it was time to look again at the notion of the state setting up some sort of state banking institution along the lines of the old agricultural credit corporation which was set up to service the agricultural community the industrial credit corporation which was set up to service business and industry basically um, and is it time to revisit that sort of model because as well as the problems I have outlined that I see out there as in the lack of competition, the price gouging that will result from that, and ultimately the very poor banking service that um, businesses and individuals will get in this country. Um, is, is, you know, is that um, something that needs to be addressed? And one way of addressing that would be to look at permanent TSB, for example, PTSB, the state owns 75% of that at the moment. You look at the post office network um, that has been under serious pressure for the last number of years because of changes in the way in which we do business, basically, and the, 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 the decline really in letter post. Um, although it is worth pointing out that in the last 12 months, post office parcel business has grown dramatically as a result of on sh online shopping. So, you know, I think people are realizing now actually the post office system does play a strong role in the economy and in society. And the third part of that state pillar could be the credit union movement. Um, you know, we, we have a community organization around the country called the credit union movement. So that can fulfill a much more significant function if given the wherewithal to do that. So is it time to step in and set up some sort of state-controlled entity? Um, and, and, and okay, that state-controlled entity should not, in my view, be based on the profit motive because if it does, you then start to go down the, the road of the existing banking institutions. Um, but... And one of the things that a state bank could certainly do is to, number one, provide more competition in the banking market. And secondly, and I think even more importantly from a social perspective, is to provide banking facilities to those people and businesses that the two big banks have less and less interest in looking after. So I think there is a significant market failure now. And I, I believe 
the state needs to step in and address that market failure. Um, I'd be interested in your views on that in a second, Chris. Be, be, and be, before I hand back to you, I would just say that in relation to the implications of what Bank of Ireland announced yesterday, which is obviously an ongoing part of bank strategy, cutting bank branches, we've also seen a lot of post offices shut down around the country over the last number of years. So this is further undermining the integrity and the life of the high streets of our villages and towns around the country. So I would think it's just another nail in the coffin of uh, the viability of towns and villages around the country. And we hear a lot of palaver at the moment about the working from home phenomenon offering huge potential for uh, people to move out of Dublin and so on and to work from home in towns and villages around the country. But if people are going to be enticed to live in towns and villages, they need vibrancy there. You know, they need financial institutions, they need post offices, they need shops, restaurants, and so on. Um, but there's a lot of contradictions, I believe, going on here at the moment. We're allowing towns and villages actually die. And yet, on the other hand, we're saying that there is really a future for those towns and villages because a lot of people will want to live there. Yeah, that's, I mean, there's a lot there, Jim. I mean, what of the regeneration of the rural economy has, has many dimensions, and we certainly haven't got time to go into them all today, but the, the need for a, a, a supportive banking system is clearly there. And I think you've rightly identified a, what we economists call a market failure and that needs addressing. And the traditional route to addressing market failures is by government. And uh, how you actually do that is tricky because we know that um, when the state gets involved in things, it can do a great job and we know that it can do a very poor job. But Chris, before you go on, you could also say the same thing about the private sector. I, and, and I do. Um, yeah. And so I would be a pragmatist about this and ask, always ask the question, what can be made to work? But I think the issues that we've raised today um, are clear that it isn't working at the moment. Um, the state is going to have to intervene in some way to ensure um, a banking supply to those that um, risk having it cut off and also to encourage competition and innovation to make sure that uh, a basic levels of customer service are maintained and those customers aren't ripped off, that those services aren't overpriced. Those are all very big questions and I think that the state has to get involved in that. Um, I suspect we're going to have to leave it there for today um, because how we actually do that is is, is the topic of, of another discussion. Yeah, Chris, I think you're right. We have brought up many interesting topics in relation to where banking is and in relation to where, number one, banking is going and secondly, where we'd like to see banking going. And uh, I would love to think that this will become a significant public debate over the coming months and years because um, what's happening in our banking sector at the moment I find deeply disturbing. I don't believe it's positive um, from any possible perspective. So let the debate begin and hopefully we can make a further contribution to it as we um, look forward. So thanks very much for listening. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. We aim to provide an independent take on economics, politics, and anything else that takes our fancy. 
Thank you very much for listening and we hope to have you on board again very soon.